0: Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent.
1: My name is Michael Denenga. I'm an investment funds lawyer and partner at Weber Wenzel. Today, we'll be talking about the widely anticipated African Continental Free Trade Area. I'm delighted to have with me two highly esteemed professionals and industry leaders, Dr. Nkosana Moyo and Sibam Tassa. Dr. Moyo is the founder and executive chairman of the Mandela Institute for Development Studies. He's an Eisenhower Fellow and a World Economic Forum global leader for tomorrow alumnus. Until 2011, was the vice president and chief operating officer of the African Development Bank. Before joining the AFDB, Dr. Moyo worked at Actis as managing partner for the Africa business. He also served at the World Bank's International Finance Corporation as an associate director. In his native country, Zimbabwe, he served as Minister of Industry and International Trade. Dr. Moyo has previously served on many boards in the airline, finance, tourism, sugar, and food sectors. Simba Tassa is currently the regional director for Southern Africa at Norfund. He started his career at Citi in London in 2007. In 2013, he joined the M&A team at Liberty Global. And in 2015, Simba rejoined City's investment banking franchise based in Johannesburg, firstly as vice president and subsequently as director. So last year, the African Union agreed to create a free trade zone on the continent, the African Continental free trade area, AFCFTA, the largest since the World Trade Organization was formed. It is hoped that the AFCFTA will reduce trade tariffs, create jobs, and generally enhance regional cooperation. Dr. Moyo, my first question is addressed to you. You have both private and public sector experience, and looking at how the AfCFTA FTA has set very laudable objectives of increasing African intra-trade by 50% by 2030 and uniting 1.3 billion people across Africa. Are you confident that the AfCFTA can achieve the stated objectives and that this is the response the continent requires to bring about enhanced regional cooperation?
0: Michael, if I may, uh, thanks firstly for giving us the opportunity to have uh, this conversation because I think it's incredibly important. The ACFTA is a really important, very, very important uh, platform that has been conceptualized. And I choose that word conceptualization carefully because clearly there is many a slip between conceptualization and, and implementation. And whilst the the concept is very laudable and a lot of the uh, numbers, the anticipated achievements, possible achievements mentioned, I wouldn't quibble about whether it's 3.4 million or some other number higher or lower. To be honest with you, these things are achievable, but they're only achievable provided certain implementation measures are taken care of. And this is where I think we really need to focus our attention from having conceptualized this. How do you actually bring it to reality with any prospect of making it succeed? And I would like to, to point to a few what I would call sine qua, non, sine qua non of possible success in this area. I think that the globalization, so let me start almost like obliquely. If globalization has taught us anything, is that when you implement some of these grand and good ideas, which are potentially beneficial to humankind, you need to pay incredible attention to making sure that you don't create a whole host of people who feel left behind. The participants or intended participants must feel, or in fact the structure must make them have a skin in the game. You will understand this from your investment kind of involvement, what that really means. If the participants either feel left behind for whatever reason, or don't have skin in the game, then their commitment to making this initiative succeed is going to be um, compromised, let me put it that way. And we can get into detail as to what does it mean, how do you structure How do you build the architecture to make that happen? I think you also need to create what I would call a positive momentum. In other words, the implementation must not have too many hurdles at the beginning, which literally become insurmountable to some extent. And the key element about this issue of creating a momentum, a positive momentum that people can then want to go with, is when you've got an entity that has got more than 50 uh, participants, so 54 countries participating in it, how realistic is it from point zero to expect that the implementation must involve all of them and without, without all of them coming on board and buying into it and really supporting it, it doesn't get going. I think this is a major, major issue. So my approach would be look for a few Vanguard members and get the Vanguard members to create the momentum with clarity about the door stays open for others to join along the line when they become ready to join. But don't wait for everybody from day one because I think that's undoable. Well, that's last element. What then that if you're going to have a phased in terms of ability to join, phased approach, Others start and others can come further down the line. It means the architecture of the rules and regulations has to be what I would call conceptually a modular approach. In other words, from day one, you have to design the whole system without necessarily all the pieces being in place in day one, if you understand, like Lego. There is a starting point and then you can build out, but the pieces fit properly together. So the rules and regulations of what happens, how you join, and so on and so on, must be conceptualized and have absolute clarity right at the onset. So that it becomes clear, it's obvious to everybody, it's transparent to everybody, what it is they need to do in order to join this club. So that those would be my three major asks right at the beginning in terms of making this thing take off and have any chance of success and my
1: key takeaway there is implementation and we'll come back a little bit later to unpack that in in a bit more detail and i just wanted to bring in simba here simba excited to talk to you because dfis in africa are generally understood to play a very important role in facilitating projects you know the actors anchor investors in long tenure projects which encourages other players, such as banks, to come into those projects. You know, they invest in private equity funds, which then invest in underlying infrastructure projects, renewable energy, and so forth. And that credit enhancement aspect that DFIs play is critically very important. But what I I wanted to ask you was, in view of the fact that the AFC FTA has prioritized five sectors, being financial services, travel, transport, business services, and communication. Are you happy that these are the critical focus areas at this point in time? Are there any other priority areas that you would have wanted to see from a DFI perspective and perhaps from an orphan perspective?
2: Hey, Mike, and I think, um, obviously, thank you very much for, for the warm intro earlier. Um, you know, you always you always hear these intros and, and you ask yourself, uh, are they sure they're talking about me? But uh, <laughs> as, uh, as, as the matter may, uh, let me get right into the questions. You know, I think, um, the one thing we need to to acknowledge um, first and foremost, and uh, this doesn't apply specifically to DFIs, uh, but ultimately that everyone has a has a role to play, um, and that is everyone from public sector, private sector, you know, a, a, and so forth. You know, when it comes to getting this AFC TFA accurate and, and correct we have to take an ecosystem approach um, and everyone has to be a, a stakeholder in that ecosystem in tune with, with what Dr. Moyo alluded to. Um, coming back to the meat of your question about the, the, the sectors that have been prioritized um, and whether we're happy. Um, now, uh, if you allow me some, you know, maybe we call it poetic license, uh, I'll, I'll answer this from two two approaches. The first is as as a young African, uh, and someone that is uh, perennially optimist, but is is desperate to see this this continent uh, achieve and, and and fulfill its potential. Uh, if I look at those sectors, am I happy? Of course, I'm happy. I think any prioritization in in what I think are a- anchor sectors is 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 vital. Financial services, uh, besides this connectivity uh, ability, also plays a role uh, in—we can call it the cost of capital or managing the cost of capital, which is which is critical. You know, if we look at the cost of capital across uh, the continent, um, it—it I wouldn't say per se cripples, but it—it—it creates a threshold um, that makes it difficult to to get projects over the line. Transport, business services, communications—these are all bedrocks. And you know, maybe at a, at a later stage we can we can delve into them in more detail. So, from a personal perspective, am I happy? Yes, I am. Um, from a Northern perspective, uh, we at Northern are broadly speaking focused in in, in five sectors, uh, that being uh, renewable energy, financial institutions, manufacturing, agri value chain, and green infrastructure. So broadly speaking, there is some overlaps, uh, most specifically in the financial services. so I think from that regard we're happy. We see financial services as a cornerstone area uh, for driving development, um, especially through um, providing capital into uh, the economies um, and and help manage uh, you know the the broader cost of capital
1: yeah, yeah. And I mean, based on the fact that you you do have manufacturing as one of your development objectives, I mean, at, at this point in time, Africa currently spends about $63 billion on food imports, right? And in order for the AFC FTA to be successful, Africa's ability to beneficiate and place less reliance on exporting raw materials is also key. So are you planning to play a more role, a bigger role than what you're currently playing in terms of investing in manufacturing businesses so that we don't have a, such a huge focus on on, on, on importing finished products?
2: Yeah, look, I think for us, manufacturing is actually a, a key aspect of our of our new recently released strategy. You know, we didn't historically look at manufacturing, but it's something that has come in to our broader strategy, as I said of late. Um, and the key thing is, uh, the developmental attributes that the manufacturing sector brings. You know, if I think of it in terms of what's key or a key threshold for us, is always looking at industries that support job creation. Um, and there is, what I say is manufacturing that we see and has direct impact. But what people often look at is ma- manufacturing is, is what I'd like to term a multiplier industry. Broadly speaking, I always say there's enabling industries like um, we can maybe look at power and say that's an enabling industry, and then there's multiply industries like manufacturing um, and, and the reason I say multiplying is if if we take an example and we look at the motor industry and manufacturing a part for the motor industry, that aspect of manufacturing that uh, steel and taking it to the next uh, to the to the finished product. Has a value add. But if we then look back upstream and downstream and look at the impact that that one product has, you know, in the one direction, we're looking at steel and everything that feeds into the steel industry. We're looking at coal, everything that fields into the coal industry. We're then looking at logistics, transporting those products to the manufacturing plant. In the other direction we 're then looking at a wholesaling marketing and an ad so fundamentally for us, we see manufacturing as a very important space and not just from adding value, which is which is good discipline for for us as a, as a as a region to have. You know, I think we need to minimize what we're sending out as raw material and be seen to add value, but not just, as I, as I try to allude, from the value that we'll add to that one product, but the broader developmental uh, attributes that that will have for broader industry value chains. Makes, makes
1: a lot of sense. And perhaps I can also just bring Dr. Moyo here. I mean, you mentioned that everyone has to be a stakeholder. and You mentioned this modular approach. But if we move away from the implementation for now, just in terms of assisting uh, this free trade area to function and achieve its results, in terms of assisting the likes of NOFAN and other DFIs in in, in reaching their developmental objectives, what other role players do you foresee as being important in investing in manufacturing businesses and renewable energy and other such very valuable and, and, and infrastructure requirements that we need in Africa?
0: Michael, allow me to be totally undisciplined and refuse to answer your question and dwell on this issue of prioritization. Okay. Because I I actually disagree with it. Okay. So let's go start. What is trade? Trade is value exchange. So my view is that if you go for a Vanguard approach, you get those five, ten, whatever countries in a room and you analyze their capacity to engage in a value exchange situation or system. In other words, you look at comparative advantages within that group and see where they can start in terms of exchanging goods and services. I don't think you can start by stipulating upfront what it should be before you actually know who is participating that's if you use my approach about a vanguard approach yeah and i think there is a lesson to be learned about how you learn and acquire skills which give comfort for you to then tackle harder and harder things and harder and harder things tend to come with more risk which means when you when you tackle harder things you need to have sufficient assurance that you've acquired the experience and the skills to mitigate and manage those risks. So these are the approaches I would use in determining the trajectory, the phasing of how it, this thing should be tackled. I understand that. And it actually brings
1: me to my next question as to, you've obviously got a lot of advice and around not taking this Vanguard approach and, and, and creating this modular approach to implementation. What, to your knowledge, are the ways and manner in which Uh, one is able to give this level of input and lobbying? Because there's still a lot of negotiations taking place. There's still a lot of implementation procedures that are still to happen. How does one give this input? How is it fed into and and listened to and then
0: implemented? So I would would ask uh, that organizations such as yours and uh, Simbas organization, uh, DFIs, actually do a piece of work, firstly desk work, to identify and I know that politically, this is probably going to come out being politically incorrect. But in life, unfortunately, it's always the case. Within the AU, there will be some big hitters, people who really do work and can influence what happens. I would say rather than a scattergun approach, identify who these people are, and they try to get them in a room and have this conversation now sooner rather than later to make to allow them to have input they can use to shape how the rules or the negotiations are then concluded so that would be my 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 advice identify who are the key players in there try and get to them get them in a room and have this conversation and simba do you know if there are any uh Cooperating
1: on let or lobbying efforts that are being done by DFIs generally to convey, uh, you know, issues that are in the interests of, of the private sector as a whole.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a, it's a it's a good question. Um, and, and Michael, to be honest, there's uh, there's nothing that I know um, uh, at this stage. Um, as you're aware, I think the DFIs are always working together um, in, in the support of their ultimate mandates. Um, but there, there isn't anything to my to my knowledge at this stage.
1: Simba, the pandemic has already delayed the implementation of the AFCFTA, right? And you know, so what, what what kind of lessons have we learned from it? Uh, has this necessarily given us any urgency or impetus to realise the AFCFTA for positive change? And what sort of contributions have have, have
0: you guys played generally uh, during this time? Uh, before before Simba answers, Michael, the 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 pandemic is not delayed; it's given us breathing room. Okay. So... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <It's> a...
1: <laughs> no, that that is that, that that is actually a good way to put it. It's just uh, delayed in the sense of the initial implementation that it's targeted by the secretariat. Yeah, but but you make a valid point.
2: Look. Uh, you know, Michael, I think uh, Dr. Moyer touched on it earlier uh, about the pandemic, right? And I think the first thing we need to be clear about is that by no means is it over, um, one. And two, we're never really uh, – where we are now, we actually don't know the full impact of it. Um, so we need to be cognizant of those two things, right, that we'll probably at some point, you know, looking back, be able to be like, okay, that was, was was the impact. Um, Dr. Moya interjected and, and, and touched on a very key point. Um, the pandemic has given breathing room. Um, it hasn't come and fundamentally changed relationships and so forth. And in breathing room, as in any sport at halftime or whatever, it gives people a chance to take stock, figure out, what they would do or what's going on and how it impacts thinking and obviously apply that on where they were historically. Now, when we think of lessons learned from COVID, I think the key thing is around um, centralization of, uh, you know, call it uh, manufacturing or, or product facilities. And, you know, I think where we are, I think it's, it's, it's a good opportune moment for people to to reflect on, ultimately, the, the end goal of what we're solving for with AF, um, with, with, you know, the free trade um, uh, agreement. And, and actually reflecting and saying, does it incorporate everything that we've taken from what's currently happening? And have we fully baked that in to where we are going? Um, ultimately, the way to think about it is if there's a lesson that we need to take is that we can't centralize anything. And it comes back to manufacturing. We need to take, be it regional, continental, but a, a view of actually looking and thinking where is best for so-and-so to be located. And and working it in that such that we're actually building trade or, or trading channels that, that are sustainable. Because ultimately, what we don't want is we don't want to get into a situation where you end up with, uh, uh, I think the doctor touched on it earlier. I've just forgotten the wording, but, um, ultimately, you, you, you need to build everyone up, uh, simultaneously. We will not have anything sustainable if, there is not uh, a, a broad-based uh, spread of that growth.
0: Uh, if, if Michael, you don't mind, let me build on, on what Simai just said and use a, a, a very practical example, which has always fascinated me. If you haven't looked at the, the case study of the Airbus, you need to actually, in preparing yourself to have these conversations, go and familiarize yourself with the architecture of distributed manufacturing that the Europeans uh, used to get the Airbus project done and, and also incorporating the concept of skin in the game. So the Airbus is assembled in France. Its components are manufactured virtually all over Europe. So the UK, Germany, Spain, France itself, uh, all of these countries manufacture something that then gets moved to France to assemble the Airbus. In terms of capacity and technical competence, I think at at the very least maybe five individual European countries could have done the Airbus project on their own from beginning to end. They could have manufactured it. Technically, that would have been no big deal. But if they'd taken that approach, it would have been an an abysmal failure commission because they would not have had what they actually do have, which is, when you look at, if you take France, the UK, and and, uh, Germany, I mean, in fact, take most of the European countries because of this skin in the game, because they manufactured components for the Airbus, All their airlines became customers to buy the aircraft. And that's how come they were able to ramp up opposition or competition to Boeing so strongly to a point where now you think of Boeing, you think of Airbus. now, And the Airbus project is not so... I mean, it it is now a few decades old, but it's an amazing, amazing achievement because of this issue of... Understand what skin in the game really looks like. Understand how you get people to say, I want to buy from this entity as opposed to, I can as well go and buy from China. Why should I not buy from China? It makes no difference to me because they they don't have skin in the game. It's a fascinating project to look at, to understand.
2: And, and and I think and and Michael, sorry to 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 come in. And I think another interesting aspect, you know, earlier you touched on transport, right? Um, and we can look at it from the road networks or actual moving of goods, you know. And I think a, a key thing we we that that also needs to to come out is what's going in what direction, you know. Currently, what will happen is you'll have goods going into one country. And trucks coming back empty so part of it is also then thinking about my trade routes and so forth and creating situations where maybe i have a manufacturing plant in x just so that it helps my trade routes and you know all of a sudden my transport costs are going down so part of it is even uh, you know touching on the boeing is is then trying to figure out where do i put together? Where am I bringing things from? And how is that helping my trade routes? Because then you're creating, you know, what what we could term an e- uh, a synergistic ecosystem. Um, but I, I think it's just touching on, you know, what Dr. Moya alluded to and how something simple as a decentralized manufacturing has other knock-on effects, as I, you know, eluded. What I just touched on manufacturing around the, the the whole value chain in itself. Well, I certainly
1: hope that um, this pause for breath uh, will get us into that situation where we can, you know, make sure that the essentials that need to happen are put in place, and that the negotiations that are taking place will also look at this synergistic ecosystem that that you both uh, allude to, and that there's an alignment of interest you know, amongst all the, the, the relevant parties. Uh, I mean, I think there's no doubt that this is an excellent opportunity that Africa cannot miss out on. And we're all hopeful that it will become the success that we want it to be, and that it will open up new markets. And uh, this uh, brings us to to our discussion. Uh, I'd really like to thank you, Dr. Kusana Moya and Simba Mtasa, for the time, sharing your very insightful thoughts, uh, all the suggestions, um, and also for the listeners for joining in. This has been Webowenso Legal Insights. Our executive producer is Paula Yont. This podcast is produced for Webowenso by Folio. Thank you for listening.
0: listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit weberwenzel.com.